there's just a demand for that type of flower in Vermont because it's a destination wedding location. So people are coming here to get married and it just so happens that that look often includes more garden, wildflower looking flowers. So we're lucky in that sense that that happens to match. When we can grow and sell more quantities, that actually becomes more profitable because then we can invest in the equipment that makes it easier for us to produce it. Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. This is episode 606. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florist shops and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. Thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Grow Flowers. Farm Grow Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgrowflowers.com. And thank you to Mayesh Wholesale Florist. Family-owned since 1978, Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S., and we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at mayesh.com. Well, last month, I participated in the Spring Educational and Workshop Series presented by Green Mountain Floral Supply in Burlington, Vermont. It was a Slow Flowers Love Fest, bringing me together with Tom and Kim Jennings, owners of Green Mountain, Jason Munn, Seminar Coordinator, Holly Chapel, who taught floral design and business workshops for three days, and today's guest, local Vermont flower farmer Jesse Witcher, co-owner with her partner Gregory Witcher of Understory Farm, all Slow Flowers members. Jesse was invited to share about her flower farm and to discuss growing premium specialty cut flowers to supply Green Mountain and other outlets. We also heard a presentation by farmer florist Abby Matson of Diddle and Zen. She's also located in the Burlington area. I took advantage of a free day to invite both Jesse and Abby to record conversations to share with you. We'll hear from Abby in a few weeks, but today you're in for a treat to learn from Jesse. We'll learn how Jesse and Gregory do the math to calculate profitability for their mostly wholesale-focused operation. Nearly 80% of their flowers include wholesale channels to both Green Mountain Floral Supply and to two area grocery co-ops in their region. If you've always wondered how to make it work selling wholesale, you'll learn from Jesse's insights. It's a great place to start. Let's jump right in and meet Jesse Witcher. Welcome back to the Slow Flower Show with Deborah Prinzing, and I'm so excited to be coming to you today from Burlington, Vermont, where I've been participating in some workshops 
at Green Mountain Floral Supply, including one that I did with my guest yesterday. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Jesse Witcher is the co-founder of Understory Farm. Is it Understory Flower Farm or just Understory Farm? Just Understory Farm. Okay, yeah, because you had origins that weren't flower-based, right? True. <laughs> uh, Jesse presented yesterday a story of her farm, and uh, we had a roundtable discussion. It was great, and uh, I just wanted to welcome you to the podcast and share your story with people. Thank you. Yeah. So um, you're in Vermont. It seems like a little bit inhospitable for farming due to the winters, but how does it work for you? What months do you farm? And tell us a little bit about Understory Farm. Um, We grow uh, about five acres of annual crops, field crops, and then we have a couple acres of perennials. And then we have six high tunnels that are 30 by 70 feet. Is that what makes farming here possible? Yeah, I mean, people farm here without that, but in order for it to be our main livelihood, we both work full-time on the farm. And we mean you and your partner? Yeah, Gregory and I both. Okay, Um, great. So, um, and now uh, three of our high tunnels are minimally heated, meaning we just have one one heater in there, which is enough to, like, take the edge off the shoulder seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, like, fully heat them in the winter to produce things midwinter. But we can produce, we're harvesting crops April through the end of November. Okay. Yeah. Actually, that's that's a long period of time. That's, like, seven months, right? Yeah, we're really happy with that. We feel like we can go hard those months, and then we get a little bit of a break. Right. Wow. So when you said the, the minimally heated, that's is that for the early bulb crops or cool annual cool season annuals? What what are you trying to take the edge off and keep just slightly above freezing? Yeah, we do the early crops like um, anemone, ranunculus, tulips. We do tulips outside in the field and also in the tunnel. And then also for our fall, we do um, snapdragons and. Um, we do a lot. We do an entire house of heirloom mums, oh. uh, which are cold hardy, right. but it's with we can't get enough harvested um, without that taking the edge off at okay. the end of the season. And then this year we do, are we are seeding in the fall to have crops over winter to come on the following spring. And are those mostly like um, cool seed, cool cool annuals or whatever? They're yeah, called, like or? Icelandic poppies, bells of fire, oh. snapdragons. Yes. Wow. Well, you told a really great story yesterday about kind of transitioning from having, um, being meat farmers as well as some vegetable, is that correct? Yeah. Bef- and then flowers and then how, how that all kind of became an aha moment for you that flowers were really your calling. And I'd love to hear that story. And I think it's relevant. A lot of people, you know, start out thinking flowers will be their secondary crop. And then all of a sudden they're surprised at how much demand there is and how how people respond to them right yeah um when we first started farming which was actually in arizona we grew just specialty greens and that that was our business Um, specialty greens like for mixed salads or like salad mixes and then we had a cookable greens mix also okay and who did you sell to more to the consumer or just a co-op and then at a farmer's market um it was sort of my project while i was at home Uh my daughter um and then we decided to move to New England for a better water source. Um, the West is dry. Yeah. You, just to stop you for a sec, you said that yesterday, and it was I, it was a really an interesting reason why someone re, would relocate. I, I, I think that's probably going to 
happen more with the droughts in the West. So uh, do you, where you ended up, you could just have a readily available access to water most um, communities, or did you have to really hunt for land? You were leasing first, right? Well, at that point, we when we moved, we were just getting jobs on a pastured livestock operation. Okay. So they okay. did some dairy and raised pigs. But long term, um, you're thinking, if we're going to do this for our livelihood, we need water. True. Okay. Yeah. Um, ironically enough, water has continued to be an issue <laughs> just because it's so important. I yeah. Think, you know, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. But yeah. Yeah. Um, you didn't have to, where we were living at the time in Arizona, all the fields had to be irrigated continuously just sure. even grow grass for the animals wow. so at least that was a change you know we we moved to a livestock operation where we rotationally grazed and we just moved fence and so that's great yeah, yeah. so at first we got jobs doing that and then when we did finally move to um, Vermont we found a place where we knew we could lease the land and start our own thing um, yeah, and at that point, we were new to the area, and so we just did a little bit of everything mm-hmm. to try to figure out what we could make a living. And that was, you said you're in your, you were you there for eight years leasing before you bought land? Yeah. Okay, so when were you able to buy your own land and really make permanent roots for understory farm? This will actually only be our third season. Really? There. So wow. we, we almost entirely built our business on someone else's land. Yeah. Which has challenges and its benefits. Um, During that period of time when you were leasing, and that was how far outside of Burlington? That was about an hour and a half away, or about an hour to hour and 40 minutes away. So we got, we've moved closer. You've moved closer, but Burlington was sort of the major market, even then, or? Um, Burlington and Rutland. Okay. The two more populated areas around us. Um, I thought it was really interesting when you talked about, you know, you had, you were, you were selling pork and you were selling vegetables of some variety. And then you brought the flowers to the farmer's market just to make your stall look pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Because I guess packages of pork is not too sexy, right? Right. Yeah. And I've, I've always grown flowers. And like I mentioned yesterday, I actually worked with Shanti Reed just like learning from her basically um, about flowers. It's something so. I was always, yeah, always passionate about. And so I always grew at that point when I would bring them, it was just like this little home garden section that I had. Um, but enough. Enough that I could bring them every week. And then I, yeah, they started selling out and people wanted more. And so the next year we did more. Wow. And then when did you actually make that hardcore decision? Like, okay, we're just going to go all in with flowers. Yeah, I think it was 2017, I want to say, we got the grant through Farm Viability. Yes, um, let's talk about that a little bit. This is a unique to Vermont? I'm, I'm not sure. I think that there are variations of it nationwide. Okay. But, but this one but, is for, for Vermont farmers. Yes. And um, it was such a cool process because, like I mentioned yesterday, at the time we were not keeping good records. It was like we were writing down the money we got from the farm stand box or what we made. We weren't tracking things. Right. And we weren't tracking how profitable things were and what our expenses for each thing was. So it helped us. Not only did it help us do that, it required that we started doing that. And we had somebody checking on us to make sure we were. We also did market research um, and, you know, some branding stuff. We got help with that. And through that year process of, like, 
doing that, we recognized that the flowers, there was way more profit potential in wow. them. And not only, and they were more profitable. We had more control over the aspects going into it than with pork. Wow. So it was and that, that eye-opening. Yeah, and that program really imposed some discipline on you, but it seems like you brought that discipline now into how you run the farm. I mean, you, you seem to keep excellent records, and you have a very good sense of, um, you know, how, how your pie is divided and what's where the, where the revenue streams are coming from and what you want to keep, what you want to grow. Thank yeah. goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's been, I don't know how we would have a profitable business if we didn't learn how to do that. And I think also it's important to recognize when we started doing it, it was far from perfect. Mm-hmm. And over time, we've gotten better at doing it. But mm-hmm. starting it at all, even if it's um, a little messy, is good, worth it. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I'm so bad at record keeping on is mileage. And I, at the end of the year, I just say to my accountant, oh, I'm sure like 50% of my driving was for work. And I, I, that is so <laughs> inaccurate. You know, I probably am get, leaving money on the table. But um, boy, it's just, how do you keep records? Are you writing down every day or once a week? Or you have different types of records you keep, like harvest records as well as sales records. Yeah, we do. Um, we keep uh, all of our records for all of our sales, and then we, we put them in different categories. Um, and then this year, we've actually started making a recipe for every mix bunch we do, and then a harvest record. And so we have what we put in each bouquet each week, which helped. Well, it helps with pro- being able to project availability, which is a big deal for being able to increase our wholesale. Yeah. Um, sales is to yeah. know around what we're going to have so people can plan for that if they're booking a wedding. Well, part of your presentation to the workshop yesterday was very much about building a wholesale uh, channel for your farm. Um, I, find it, I find it's a little overwhelming for people. They don't know how to crack the code and get into it. How do you do pricing? And um, it seems like at some point you, maybe with this viability grant, you made an intentional decision to try to build your your wholesale business um, to the scale that it is now, which is a little under 50% of your categories, right? Total categories, yes. 45.7% wholesale. That was a couple years ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So So it's the biggest. Yeah, yeah. it's the biggest. Yeah. And then the other piece that's large is grocery stores, which I think some people would also consider a wholesale of sorts because... They're marking it up. They're marking it up. That's true. Oh, you're way over them. They're both wholesale technically, but we divide them separately. And you said grocery was, is it like 35% or something? Yeah. I think the most current one is like those two together is about 80%. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because the flower share and the weddings are both pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The wholesale seems to uh, just just seems to be a lovely relationship with um, the Green Mountain wholesale operation. But it probably took a while to figure out how to sell at that level. What were the challenges? Was it about getting the quantities that they could take or negotiating the pricing? Or I mean, I know you've talked about it being a lot of communication. Yeah, I mean, all of those things were <laughs> challenging. Um, I mean, I just grow different crops than what they were even buying at the time. Um, Which is why you were so appealing to them, right? 
Yeah, in some ways appealing, but in other ways, like, they didn't know really what to do with it, Mm -hmm. you know? I think um, I I write my own availability, so people who are buying our product from them are also getting that, and so I'm able to explain. I'm able to communicate about what we grow directly to the people that are actually buying it from them. Got it. And I think that's been a huge component. The floors are receiving additional explanation from you right like I'm not relying on Green Mountain to do my marketing got it and I think that's interesting that's that's been kind of a key component um, of making it work and also I think there's a couple unique things one that the Pete there's just a demand for that type of flower in Vermont because it's a destination wedding location so people are coming here to get married and it just so happens that that look often includes more garden wildflower looking flowers so we're lucky in that sense that that happens to match and yeah. I think that that's always the case around the nation you know right right I mean the, the, the fact that this is a destination wedding uh, region is also uh, makes it possible for these florists to have their businesses so it's all everyone's interdependent on making it work what was the, I don't know, the first flower that you took into Green Mountain and, and said, hey, I'm growing this, do you guys want to sell it? Or was it more of a bucket of, of variety, of mixed uh, choices? Honestly, the first time I went in there, it was just a van full of buckets. It was the mid-season, I think, and a friend of mine had just said, why don't you go to Green Mountain and talk to Tom? And he buys local stuff, I think, sometimes, so yeah. I did, and he happened to not be there. And um, the person who was there was not interested. <laughs> so I left feeling right. a little discouraged. <laughs> yeah. um, but then um, Jason actually saw, we had posted a picture of our entire van pretty much full of ranunculus. And he texted it to Tom and he was like, you need to get a hold of these people. Because yeah. he had, I think, already been mentioning it. Um, yeah. And so then somebody from there called me and I remember who went in. So ranunculus was probably our ticket. So we're talking about yeah. Tom, Tom Jennings, the <laughs> owner of Green Mountain, who is a past guest of this podcast, actually, oh. and members of Slow Flowers. And he, um, I think his heart has is, is always been in the right place, too, because he loves farmers, and he loves farmers from all around the world, because he's obviously dealing with many regions. Mm-hmm. But part of it was, you know, the challenges of finding a farmer he could have an ongoing relationship with and, um, you know, who he knew had excellent quality and could be relied upon because continuity is sort of the secret to your success that you you follow up and do what you say you're going to do and you communicate if something isn't available. Absolutely, yeah, that's been huge. And I think it maybe is important to acknowledge that that's part of that relationship piece is why I wanted that part of the business. I wanted to have a business that was built around ongoing relationships and not just like I work with this couple for this season or even farmers markets those really they're very fleeting like yes. you see them every week but it's not like um it doesn't feel like a deep connection like what you get if you're seeing if you're actually working with someone yeah. day in and day out and I, I wanted that that's wonderful and I'm grateful that Tom was willing to, and you know he like you said he wanted to provide local flowers and there was the demand in the floral community here too right I mean all of this was kind of happening at the same time was this like five or six years ago or yeah okay I mean the floor floret was just starting and so I think the whole aesthetic around design was changing there's just a lot happening um 
Yeah, and you mentioned Jason, and, and we have to acknowledge Jason Munn, who is um, was basically coordinated this whole week of of lectures and um, as a, as a wedding and event designer as well. And so to have someone like Jason, who was already a customer of Green Mountain, send those ranunculus photos mm-hmm. to the biggest wholesaler in the region, and I say region, I mean like all of New England, yes. not just Vermont. Um, and say, look at these juicy flowers. We, why don't you have them? I mean, in a in a friendly way, like that. Just kind of everything seemed to click into place. Right, and I think a big part of it too is me learning how Tom's business works. Yeah, because I really that. had no idea, and it's much different than running a farm business. And he's more than happy to talk to you <laughs> about his business and his experience. He's a great communicator. Yes, he is. <laughs> Um, he's great at telling all kinds of stories, but also talking about the, about the, his business. And he's also very, very smart and has a lot of experience. And so something I recognized early on is that they are maxed with what they're already doing. And they're already doing a lot and providing a lot. So as much as he wants to have local flowers and as much as there are people who want them, um, they don't have a lot of time yeah. to incorporate them in. So I needed to figure out, like, how do I make myself fit into what they're already doing so yeah. that it's not a lot more work on them. So what are some of the things that you kind of – I mean, and I think this is such a good point because um, you need the customer more than the customer needs you in some cases. So you have to make it, like, seamless and painless as or and – convenient as possible I suppose mm-hmm. yeah I think one of the tricks was always having that availability out at the same time having a delivery day always on the same day got it and then and being flexible like when we first started that day was Wednesday for us to deliver and after that first season they're like look it would really be much better if you got your stuff here on Tuesday which means we work on Sunday <laughs> to harvest yeah and we really um yeah didn't love that idea because at the time we're also doing a farmer's market on Saturday um, and we're not anymore. Yay. But part of that work-life balance thing, right? right. So that was, but that was a huge shift. We shifted to Tuesdays. We started selling a ton more product. Interesting. And didn't need to do the farmer's market. Um, But I think learning, yeah, what works best for them? How does their business work? How do they sell stuff? So they do a cooler tour. Well, they needed more stuff there on Tuesday to have it on the cooler tour in order to sell more of it. Um, Is the cooler yeah. tour posted Wednesday morning? I think so. So yeah. they're, they're just videoing, videotaping all of the, all of the cool stuff in the, in the walk-in cooler, mm-hmm. and now Understory Farms product is there. Right, and they, were, they have Wednesday morning, before I was getting there, is when they take flowers over to their other location in Middlesex. Right. And so by getting them a day earlier there, that worked. You're on that truck too? Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. The quantity must have bumped up just for that reason alone. Definitely. Um, what, uh, like right now we're here at the end of March. Have you started bringing things to Green Mountain yet? No. And have you started doing grocery yet? No. So April is sort of your kickoff month? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I got you before you're yeah, super which busy. is, I think, if that was already happening, it's very... <laughs> you wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. It's great to have flowers earlier, but it's also a lot to be doing that harvesting and selling while you're also getting everything started got in it. the spring. It's crunch time. Before sure. before we turn on the recorder, you made some reference to maybe you'll have uh, tulips earlier next year. Is that a factor that you have to figure out uh, if you produced earlier tulips, would that interrupt your other farm demands like the seeding and the planting? Or are you just going to make it work? No, we could just, we would just have less of a break. Oh, I see. You'd just start, mm-hmm. start earlier. And those early tulips, would they be in crates or yeah. okay, in, yeah. in the high tunnels? Yeah. The tulips you're selling now or that you're planning to harvest now, are they all Outdoors? They're in a, we have an entire tunnel of them. Okay. And we also have a whole planting on the field. Wow. So That's we'll amazing. basically have three successions of tulips next year. Oh, wonderful. Because clearly the demand is there. Yeah. And the demand for, um, we know you talk about grocery plus wholesale is about 80%. Of the remaining uh, 20%, there is a component of direct-to-consumer in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that your, your subscription program? Yeah. And is it just something you feel like you wanted you to give back to, you know, the people who've always bought from you at the farmer's market or how does that work? Yeah. A lot of our farmer's market customers actually switch to just getting them from the co-ops that okay. we sell to. So the, the grocery towns, stores. Yeah. There's two grocery stores. Um, and that we, the flower share we started during COVID and yes, people just wanted to keep doing it. And I love it because I do write a newsletter and then I'll talk about the different flowers that are in there and, we get a lot of positive feedback yeah. directly from that outlet about yeah. like, oh, the fly take them to my mom every week. Or so, yes, I love it for they're that your, reason. They're your neighbors. They're the people you mm-hmm. see at the grocery store or yeah. at the kids' sports event. So uh, while it's a small piece, it's kind of a, a, a rewarding, personally rewarding piece. Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. And then the weddings are the other portion. And tell me how you structure your wedding business. At this point, we um, I really only do a wedding if it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun for my <laughs> husband and sometimes our daughter helps with uh-huh. that. And if it looks like a good fit, like they want local flowers, it, just something about it looks fun to yeah. us. They're flexible. So I just tell everybody that right up front that we only use what we grow. We don't promise anything specific. And if they're really flexible and just want local flowers, it's probably a good fit. And if not, then I just direct them to all of the people we sell flowers to. <laughs> I have a whole link. And uh, there are so many designers out there who are yeah. really just passionate about it and do such a great job if somebody wants, like, something more specific. Yeah. Um, so roughly how many do you do, one a month? or We have six full service booked for this year. Okay. Um, Does that feel pretty good? And that's way less than we ever have. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I think last year we had 15. But we also do um, DIY. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've gotten really good at um, having all the resources up front for that so that people can hopefully plan, do a lot of the planning on their own and just come and pick up the buckets. Do you have a DIY tab on your website? Yeah. Okay, good. I'll make sure we feature uh, some of those resources in our show notes. Um, so, Jesse, the thing that I was so fascinated with yesterday when you were, you know, you gave a beautiful presentation just for a whole introduction to the farm, and maybe I'll grab a few slides from that to, to share uh, in our in our edited video, but um, the, the wholesale 
idea, I think, scares a lot of flower farmers because they think, wow, I'm going to be having to sell my my product for a lower stem price, so I'm eating into my profitability. And you disagreed. You said that wasn't an issue because of a bigger, you're looking at the bigger picture and how it fits into your full, you know, your full uh, operation, I guess. So can you talk a little bit about how that, how that feels profitable to you to sell at a lower stem price? Yeah, I think there's a difference. We, we discovered that there's a difference in the price per stem that we receive versus the profitability of that stem. Okay. And so when I'm putting a lot of, I think a big part came around to just asking what is it we want to do with our time Yeah. and what is it we enjoy doing? And we got into farming to farm. And so the less time I can spend like creating and building new relationships or doing a lot of emailing or a lot of planning, um, and maybe being on the farm more too, right? Yeah. Like driving a lot all around the state. If I bring it to Green Mountain, they deliver it. They're already going out. So yeah. I just do one drop there and my flowers are going all over. You yeah. Know? And you're not in the van for another full day on a bucket route or something. Yeah. So we, um, so that's one component of it. We have actually like a, a spreadsheet that we use that asks these questions like how and how flexible business account that's another thing if something is really really specific that actually makes it less profitable for us because it's more stress and also um that's other things we're not selling that are probably in the ground so Mm -hmm. having flexibility in the market is another key to profitability um and having like something that we can use in multiple sales outlets makes it more profitable and i think that then there's this scale yeah right so if we had only a small space we have to make more in per stand sure to be profitable you sure just, you have to yeah but when we can grow and sell more quantities that actually becomes more profitable because then we can invest in the equipment that makes it easier for us to produce it and you have been investing and in we equipment. Have been, you right. teased people yesterday with some of these amazing attachments that you can build rows and you can spread uh, the the uh, mulch, sheeting mulch or whatever. And I mean, I was so impressed with all of that. Yeah, we have a mulch layer that does like the fertilizer, the drip, the bed shaping. And then we have a um, water wheel transplanter now. So yeah, that was cool. It's called a water wheel, wheel transplanter. Yeah. And that's the one that puts a little drip, a little deposit of liquid with mm-hmm. some fertilizer in each hole when you transplant. Yeah. Wow. And really, so that only becomes useful if you can plant an entire bed of something. Got it. And the beds have to be a certain size for the mulch layer to really work. So that means we have to sell more. So selling more at a lower price per stem does make sense. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. What is that bed size that you said that you... It has to be perfect to fit that mulch layer. You mean like the length? Uh, I guess it is. It the length or the width of it? It's just row? that if it's too short of a row, ours are our rows are about um, let's see, two hundred, one hundred and fifty to two hundred feet long. Okay. Um, and if they're too much shorter than that, you just have to turn the tractor around so much that it, it just and you have to end every bed, which means you cut the drip tape and so Got it's it. just. It's not efficient if yeah. you're only growing like tiny bits of different. Things. Sure, like like someone on a half acre couldn't do that. 
it wouldn't, yeah, it just wouldn't really make sense. Wow, that's interesting. Um, I also really appreciated the way you explained that, um, well, I don't want to assume this, but Green Mountain will pretty much, if you've got the quantities and your stuff is beautiful and fresh and, you know, professionally grown, they can, they'll take it. They'll say yes to um, what you tell them you have available or are there certain things that you just don't even offer them? Or is that a trick um, question? <laughs> I think for the most part, so when we first started, this might be helpful. Um, I would drive the van up. Nothing was pre-ordered. Okay. And Tom would buy most of everything that was on the van, not everything. Um, but he kind of just come shop the van. Right, and so it was a lot on speculation. Okay. And I think that got harder for us because we didn't want to, when we started having more, we weren't harvesting everything in our field. So we wanted to know what to harvest that would for sure be sold. We didn't sure. want to waste any time harvesting something sure. that wasn't sold oh, at a certain point. point. And then he also didn't want to buy as much on speculation because he didn't want to waste it not being sold. So over time, we're talking six years, now the whole thing's sold. And um, because that works better for him because yeah. he's not having a loss and I'm knowing exactly what to harvest. But that took a long time to get there. Yeah. So and that, that was, answers that was like sending, sending him the availability lists and quantities and mm-hmm. giving him a couple weeks lead time to know what you have uh, coming or... Yeah, I mean, at this point, we kind of, because it's been so long, we kind of, he kind of knows, like, we know what's in season. Yeah. And that goes back to also me communicating with the people who are buying from him and giving them an available, projected availability so that when they're talking to their couples, they're designing weddings that are using flowers that will actually be in season. That they know they can buy. It's like a domino. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay. (laughs) I think I followed that. Um, And thanks for that explanation. And I I just think it's a a beautiful model. I would wish this for anyone to find that kind of wholesaler that they could reliably just have this, like, well-oiled machine of bringing crops to, to sale. And I suppose knowing he knows what he sold the first part of April last year. So he's expecting that you're going to have that again, kind mm-hmm. of month after month or week after week. And he doesn't buy everything we produce. And that's why we also do grocery stores. Yeah. And the grocery seems to be this sort of wonderful vehicle for using overproduce crops that you have overproduction on or stems that, that aren't right for wholesale. And, and I don't want to go further than that. I want to have you explain it, but yeah, it's really just whatever's not ordered. So there isn't really any quality issues or anything. It's more just like, Oh, I see whatever it's our flex. Yes. So I think when you have, when you're doing anything that there are orders, then you also have to have a portion of your business that's flexible. That can absorb those non-orders. Yeah. And from that, you you can make a recipe Mm -hmm. for your grocery bookcase. And are they all standard one, one roughly predictable size? Or yeah. Do you, okay. And how do you how do you count that by stem or? Yes, yeah, stem and size. size. A combination of stem and um, hand feel, we call it. Yeah. And that is like so. I think anybody who's a flower farmer out there will know that um, making mixed bunches is very very difficult to make profitable because it takes so much time, and. Um, there have to be other factors like it happens to fit into our business that we're able to use, you know, we're able to grow at a more profitable scale. So then we're able to sell those things. And 
the grocery stores were lucky. The co-ops we work with, they have standing orders. So that's a very dependable part of our business. We know that we're going to move those flowers every yeah. week. Yeah. And um, the other component is that our employees really love making mixed matches. <laughs> it's an air-conditioned space. They get to handle the flowers. It's a creative thing. So in some ways, that does add profitability yeah. in a Quality of, of, of um, work life. Yeah. And also just kind of the, the mix of all the time out in the summer in the hot fields or high tunnels, uh, the break occurs and maybe people are happy to make those bouquets. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It makes yes. them very happy. How many bouquets are you roughly divide, producing to deliver to uh, grocery a week or is it that a, 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 mar- a metric you would use? Yeah, it's about, at this point, it's two separate days. We deliver once up um, north here to the Burlington area and once down south. And so we have about 50 bouquets that are flower share bouquets, so that's not very huge. And then about 100 the other, like each direction. Got it. Yeah. So about 250 a week. or Yeah. Yeah. I jotted down some numbers uh, when you were talking about crop, crop size and scale, just... Uh, was impressive. 6,000 Lysianthus planned for this year. Mm-hmm. And those are, do you start those with plugs or from seed? I do both. Really? Yeah. Just to diversify? and. Yeah, there are some that I can't get from plugs or that they're just like atrociously expensive. So I start those from seed and yeah. then buy other plugs. That's great. Yeah. Um, a half acre of dahlias, and I think I wrote down about 7,600 dahlias. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah, I had to look up that number to include it in the slideshow. <laughs> it's not a test. Yeah. <laughs> um, 5,000 ranunculus and 30,000 tulips. Yeah, and there'll even be more next year. I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. I love it. Um, what are, you, are those your main, main uh, kind of premium flower crops um, and then lots of, you know, textures and, you know, annuals that kind of complement those? Yeah, I would say the mums. Oh, the mums are also really big crops. Yeah, crops. and um, and how does that work? They're eucalyptus big. is oh. also really big in the fall. Okay, so the mums follow the dahlias, right? And yeah. roughly in terms of harvest time. Yeah, the mum. Yes, they kind of well, we they kind of go at the same time. Oh, that's cool. Bit, yeah, that's cool. And there's so much demand for that with fall weddings in Vermont. I'm sure. Yeah, people love that. Yeah, they're very, um, I will say they're very, very cheap wholesale. So um, interesting. We don't sell a lot wholesale okay. through Green Mountain at this point. Yeah. That's always, you know, he's always yeah. open to change that, but it's huh. they're very, very inexpensive. Huh. Wholesale. That's interesting. And are the ones that are coming in, are they coming in from Canada or South America? Good or? question. I know I should yeah. ask him that. Yeah. They're, but they're very like um, standard, right? Yeah. So the ones we grow, we've got like spider mums and right. air mums. Yeah, they're fancier, they're different, but it's still hard to justify when the price is like double yeah. for the same flower. You'll get there. Yeah. Because I it think takes that, time. But like the florist may, may determine that too. But we have no problem selling them in other outlets. Great. There's demand. Yeah. yeah. And you said eucalyptus, that, that is sort of your one of your main foliage. Crops yeah, in the fall, we sell a ton of it. Wow. I wanted to wrap up a little bit with um, your description of this organization you're working with called Farm, <coughs> excuse me, called Farm First. 
I think it's a really beautiful um, resource, and you described it yesterday as being uh, now being a, a peer advisor with Farm First. Can you talk a little bit about, am I describing that correctly? Or? Okay, so Farm First is, I believe it's actually a national program, Oh, well, but it's great. a program that Vermont has had for many years and wasn't being fully utilized. So these two women decided to start a um, peer program where they train farmers to basically we learn to be good listeners mm-hmm. and um, also to be aware of signs where somebody might need to see somebody more professional mm-hmm. and um, and also a suicide prevention training. Wow. So they actually paid us wow. to do that training. And right. so if you're somebody who's interested in talking with another farmer, you can get on the Farm First website and find and click on the peer um, support network. And then it tells you it has... Um, farmers all over Vermont and their bio. So you can choose who you'd like to speak to. Wow. And so, and like, it's a pilot project. So we're only the second cohort that was trained to do it. But I think it's brilliant because people want to talk to somebody that they feel like they have something in common with and who better knows the struggles of farming than another farmer. So yeah. I'm, I'm feeling hopeful about it. It's still getting off the ground. So yeah. we'll see what happens. Oh, I felt, I, I feel like it just, um, you know, just the willingness of people to talk about <clears throat> mental wellness and mental health in just in general and in, in the mainstream culture is, is seems to be happening, but there are certain professions that have kind of been neglected and kind of seen as like, well, aren't you a happy farmer, you know? And maybe, or a tough farmer. Yeah. You oh, know, there's the this grit. like, yeah, you've got grit, like you don't let things get you down or, um, yeah, there's a lot of, and there's just inherently a lot of struggle, yeah. a lot of unknown, a lot of curveballs um, yeah. in farming. Yeah, so. I really appreciate that. I I, yeah. I think that's a great organization. I'll try to get the link and share that as well. Um, well, thanks for sharing about that. I, I do think that it'd be great. It is a national resource, so I'll try to pull that, that link for people. Um, kind of an invisible service that... People who maybe would never call a therapist might go this route because it seems more, more accessible and maybe safer. Mm-hmm. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, I right. love it. <laughs> uh, what else do you have on tap for twenty twenty three that you're excited about? Will you be doing any on farm events or workshops, or is your plate as full as you want it to be? That's a good question. Um, Gregory and I are both feeling really excited just about this idea of um, being a team. Uh huh. And just, we have an employee who um, was with us over the winter and was with us last season. And so we're excited to have him again and um, some other people on board and just uh, to have some intention around what we all value and personal goals we have that aren't even farm related right. and just really help support each other. Oh, that's wonderful. One last question I didn't ask you. Where did the name Understory Farm come from? Because it is an adorable name. (laughs) Yeah, we went through a lot of different options. As a family, we spent months just, like, throwing things out there. Um, How old is your daughter? She is now 14. Was she involved in this decision? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
um, which is much younger than. Yeah, she actually came up with our tagline. Which give, is give a bunch of love. Oh, that's yeah, so sweet. So, um, but I love it. At one point, we I saw her reading a book that she brought from school um, to a horse, and the horse was like reaching his head over the stall and looked. It looked like he was looking at the book, and for some reason, understory came to mind. I don't, and we actually can't remember who came up with it. But there was a story, time, and the child was under the storybook or whatever. Yeah, under the horse. Yeah. And then we were like, well, we're raising pigs at the time. We were raising pigs on the pastures for, like, understory. <laughs> so, not a, well, but we loved it. We loved the, and we, we love stories. Yeah. Like, as a family, that's, they're so important to us. So, we loved having I that love it. in the name. You talk about understory in terms of, like, the forest understory. You know, there's sort of that. That's where all the nutritional, you know, rich earth is. So I think that's what came to mind when I heard it. But I like the story part. Well, this has been so much fun, Jesse. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank I, you. I really love spending time with you. Thank you for sharing your, your story with us. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to, um, I, Jesse has a couple of cool maybe drone photos she's going to share oh, yeah. and some uh, other images from the farm that we'll share in our show notes at slowflowerspodcast.com when this airs as the podcast. And uh, I hope to come out and visit next time instead of making you come to my Airbnb. So <laughs> thanks so much. Welcome. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find the replay video of today's interview at slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 606. And you'll also see photos of Understory Farm and find links to some of the resources Jessie and I discussed, as well as links to her social places. Our next thank you goes to the Gardener's Workshop, which offers a full curriculum of online education for flower farmers and farmer florists. Online education is more important this year than ever, and you'll want to check out the course offerings at thegardenersworkshop.com. In other news, if you're a southeastern flower grower, and any grower for that matter, you're invited to join Slow Flowers and Johnny's Selected Seeds and attend a free webinar on April 27th at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. I'll be co-hosting the session with Johnny's Seeds Flower Product Manager, Hilary Alger, for a discussion on what it means to grow flowers in the challenging climactic conditions of the southern U.S. Our guest panel of experienced Slow Flowers members are all cut flower growers, and they're from Florida, North Carolina, and Texas. We'll hear their flower farming stories firsthand and hear how they discuss regional growing challenges, lessons learned, and their favorite varieties. You'll meet and learn from them. Rita Anders of Cuts of Color in Weimar, Texas, Eileen Tongson of Farm Gal Flowers in Orlando, Florida, Taj and Victoria Cotton of Cotton Picked in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, and Julia Keel of Full Keel Flower Farm in Fort White, Florida. The webinar is free, and you can find the sign-up link in our show notes for today's episode 606 at slowflowerspodcast.com. I hope to see you there. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Details Flowers Software, a platform specifically designed to help florists and designers do more and earn more. With an elegant and easy-to-use system, Details improves profitability, 
productivity, and organization for floral businesses of all shapes and sizes. You can grow your bottom line through professional proposals and confident pricing with details all in one platform. All Friends of the Slow Flowers podcast will receive a seven-day free trial of Details Flowers software. Learn more at detailsflowers.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. The Slow Flowers podcast is a member-supported endeavor, downloaded more than one million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers Show and the Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week. Next week.